Welcome to a patient safety podcast from Crico. Crico is the patient safety and medical malpractice company owned by and serving the Harvard medical community since 1976. A 19-year-old woman presented to labor and delivery at 39.6 weeks with ruptured membranes and irregular contractions. It was 10 in the morning. The nurse midwife confirmed a closed cervix, 70% effaced, and fetal head at minus 2 station. The fetal heart rate pattern was reactive with a baseline of 140 beats per minute. Over the next 24 hours, oxytocin induction of labor was started after some cervical ripening and then later discontinued so the patient could sleep overnight when there was no cervical change. The same nurse midwife examined the patient at 10 o'clock the next morning, finding the cervix 1.5 centimeters dilated, 90% effaced, and fetal head at minus one station. By 12.30 p.m., more progress, and the patient received an epidural and oxytocin. Baseline fetal heart rate was 120 beats per minute with audible accelerations. At 2 p.m., the midwife telephoned the obstetrician covering for that day because uterine contractions were difficult to discern. The midwife placed an intrauterine pressure catheter, as advised by the covering obstetrician. At 6 p.m., the fetal heart rate baseline was 110 to 120, but reactive. An 8-minute deceleration to 80 to 90 beats per minute occurred, resolving with discontinuation of oxytocin, maternal change in position, and use of oxygen. The patient was fully dilated at 6.45 p.m. and began pushing with fetal head-positioned occiput posterior. The covering obstetrician evaluated the fetal heart rate tracing and deemed it reassuring but advised internal monitoring. The fetal heart rate tracing recorded poorly, but was notable for a wandering baseline between 100 and 180 beats per minute with multiple repetitive decelerations, down to the 80 to 90s range, unclear if late in onset. About 35 hours after the mother's arrival to labor and delivery, the midwife performed an episiotomy, delivered the fetal head, suctioned unexpected meconium, and clamped and cut a tight nuchal cord. Shoulder dystocia ensued and did not resolve with maternal repositioning, McRoberts, and suprapubic pressure. The covering obstetrician was called in to assist. He delivered a 7-pound, 13-ounce male at 9.21 p.m. Apgars were 2, 6, and 7, and umbilical cord blood pH was 7.24. The infant developed seizures within 12 hours. The patient was transferred to a tertiary neonatal intensive care unit and now has permanent cognitive and developmental delays. The patient and his parents sued the obstetrician, the midwife, the labor and delivery nurse, and the hospital, alleging the failure to appropriately recognize and respond to fetal distress resulted in severe and permanent neurological injuries. The case was resolved by mediation for more than a million dollars, equally attributed to the nurse, midwife, and the obstetrician. To discuss the risk management and patient safety aspects of this case, we are joined now by Dr. Roxanne Gardner. Dr. Gardner is an obstetrician and associate medical director of obstetrics for CRICO. Roxanne, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Fetal heart rate tracings uh, did show some problems, and they're at the heart of the malpractice case. Why do you think those tracings weren't recognized in a more timely way? Well, I think this particular individual indicated that there may have been a lack of skills or a lack of appreciation for the patterns uh, that she was seeing and didn't realize that she should have taken more immediate action or called in somebody for help. However, it could also be that uh, instead of more of an education or knowledge deficit, uh, maybe it was more related to being uh, reluctant 
to call for help because of maybe a prior situation they had encountered with um, the clinician that they worked with. And sometimes, even though they've called for help or have the knowledge and skills, they may not appreciate the full extent of the situation because they get fixated on trying to get the delivery accomplished and really lose track of how uh, much the fetal heart rate tracing pattern has deteriorated. So how do we prevent that kind of problem from developing? How do you help the individual providers um, see the forest and not just the trees? Well, that's a, a great question without one single solution. I think a number of different uh, avenues of intervention are appropriate. I think ensuring education and that all staff maintain some competency in fetal heart rate tracing evaluation and management is extremely helpful if you're doing it at, a, at an organizational or departmental level. And it gets everybody on the same playing field if everybody is, is using the same type of educational module. So you'll have nurses and physicians and midwives and any uh, trainees involved in, in studying the same thing and learning to speak the same language and, and acquiring the same type of skills in analyzing these patterns. So I think that addresses the educational issue. And in terms of lowering the threshold to call for help, some of that would need to be approached through team training and looking at the culture of safety within a department or an institution. And having staff again involved in a, in a more global team training project, learning the same communication skills, knowing that it's okay to ask for help, and it's okay to ask for help sooner rather than later. Getting a second pair of eyes or cross-monitoring and being open to such help when it comes is, I think, invaluable to helping to keep us out of those murky areas where we're so fixated we can't see the forest for the trees. Now, CRICO has uh, sponsored and helped the Harvard institutions develop training in obstetrics and developing guidelines, uh, and you've been a part of that. Uh, do guidelines and training like that help? Well, CRICO has created a program by which to uh, champion patient safety activities and training for all of our OB uh, obstetrical providers. It involves taking a test on a yearly basis over our obstetrical guidelines, and it's a new test that's created each year. And this particular program also involves completion of simulation-based team training activities. And what we've been able to see since the beginning of this program is evidence of trends in decreasing claims related to obstetrical harm and injury. So our incentive format that uh, we had initially devised has now become a two-tier premium such that those folks who continue to participate in our patient safety activities of team training and passing the test on our OB guidelines will be able to maintain themselves in the lower tier premium category as opposed to those who, who don't. And, and CRICO has been so encouraged by these trends in the decreasing claims within the obstetrical environment that these programs will likely spread to other specialties. They're now initiating similar programs in the surgery world and in our emergency departments across the CRICO community. 
Thank you. Roxanne Gardner, obstetrician and associate medical director of obstetrics for CRICO. I'm Tom Ajello. This has been a patient safety podcast from CRICO. More information about CRICO and efforts at Harvard to deliver the safest healthcare in the world is available on our website at www.rmf.harvard.edu.